0: Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gail Muggle land. I'm Liam Miller, he, him, his, and Love, Rinse, Repeat is part of the Uniting Mission and Education arm of the Uniting Church Synod of New South Wales ACT, and I'm excited to be a part of that family. My guest today is the wonderful Joshua Rolston. Joshua, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you so much for having me. I only wish I could be in Australia with you, but it'll be fun to connect across uh, the globe. Indeed, yeah, I'm very excited for this. Yes, we we were just talking off camera that you were all slated to come out to Australia a bit over a year ago now and, um, you know, talking about some of the topics that we're going to be talking about today. And so, you know, this is a certainly a pale comparison, but it's certainly, you know, nice to be able to do it. Yeah, it's great. Um, For those who don't know, uh, Joshua Rolston is a reader in Christian-Muslim relations at the School of Divinity, University of Edinburgh, and director and co-founder of the Christian-Muslim Studies Network, funded by the Henry Luce Foundation. He has published widely on reformed theology, Christian theological engagements with Islam, Arab Christianity, and on political theology. His monograph, Law and the Rule of God, A Christian Engagement with Sharia, was published by Cambridge University Press 2020, and uh, that is uh, our topic today. So I guess before we maybe really get specifically into the book, something I've been interested in exploring a bit with some of the guests recently is, you know, it's, I don't think it's anyone just naturally falls into being a theologian uh, uh, you know especially even you know an academic theologian or, or, or what have you so I'm just curious about how you know how you led into this world what first got you interested in exploring this and perhaps then what drew you kind of into the more specific area that you're working today
1: yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, our own stories are often a little bit of a mystery to ourselves. Um, but I think there's a few key points in my life that I can look back on that sort of led me to engage as a theologian in general and then as a theologian who tries to think with Islam more specifically. I mean, as a child, I grew up in a pretty evangelical, charismatic uh, world in Southern California, where I'm from, even though I'm based in Scotland now. But I always asked a lot of questions. Both my parents were school teachers, and that kind of idea was encouraged. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there was always a sense of don't ask so many questions, uh, trust the spirit, read the Bible. But I would read the Bible, and it would ask me more questions. (laughs) Um, So I went off to university and I studied philosophy. uh, And in part, that allowed me to ask these big questions How do we know? What is true? Uh, Is there a God? If so, what is God like? Um, But at the same time, some of the ways that philosophy was rendered, especially history of philosophy or analytics seemed disconnected from lived reality. And that sort of pushed me a little bit towards theology. Mm -hmm. Um, One really powerful experience was uh, the university that I went to in the States, Wake Forest, uh, was starting a divinity school when I was an undergraduate. And one of the theologians uh, came a little bit early and had to teach some undergrads a class on the providence of God. And so we read uh, a process theologian, a hardline Calvinist, um, Landon Gilkey, Ponenberg, Bart. But Columbine uh, happened Mm. about three weeks before our final exam. And instead of doing a final exam, he made us write, choose two of the five theologians we studied and write, how would these theologians make sense of Columbine? Hmm. Which I think really, uh, made that question real, right so if if someone who is coming from more conservative background at the time, can I really say these things about God in the hardline Calvinist way in mm-hmm. light of these events? can I really say that? Um, and that sort of opened me up a little bit more to mm-hmm. some of these questions. Um, there's a lot of other stories along the way. I worked at a church uh, for a number of years in the Presbyterian Church USA in university ministry, but eventually thought you know I'm more suited for academic life. Mm-hmm. And so pursued uh, a master's and then a PhD in Christian theology. When it comes to Islam more specifically, I've told this story a little bit elsewhere. Uh, while I was doing my MDiv and PhD, my wife and I, as well as a seminary colleague of mine, Gad M. Uh, started a, a church and a ministry with people who had been resettled as, as refugees, part of the Peace USA's new church development uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and Alongside that I met a lot of a lot of Muslims who had been resettled from Somalia, from Iraq, from Sudan, uh, and became particularly close to three boys, uh, Ibrahim, Amr, and Tamar. And they just started asking me questions after we became friends, you know um, mm-hmm. why does Jesus have to die? For God to be merciful? isn't God just naturally merciful? how can God be three in one? Why do you do this on Easter? And here I was a PhD student in theology taking courses on Schleiermacher, on Thomas Aquinas, on Heidegger, and the questions of like a 17 and 19 year old boy sort of hit to the heart of my faith. And I thought, you know, if I can do this, what if I start studying the Islamic tradition in serious ways? And one thing led to another. Uh, My wife at the time worked in international development. So we ended up in Egypt and then in in Ramallah in Palestine for about two and a half years, and that sort of solidified that interest. Mm. Um, so that's a a long yeah. answer to a short question, but some of the things that led me to this.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things that I might come back to that that emerges there. you write in the acknowledgements about you know, like Bart talks about writing theology as if nothing is happening, and and but how could you do so? Um, when, as you're writing this book and so many of the events that touch upon it, even if not explicitly mentioned, you know, something was definitely happening. And I guess, you know, hearing you talk about the, the story with Columbine, it's, it's, it's that kind of theology and response, or at least aware of what's going on around. So we might come back to that. Um, so then, this book I know is is, is a, you know a significantly revised version of of, of your PhD. Um, so maybe just talk to us a little bit about the just the broad sweep of the book, a bit of its genesis, like the, this particular focus, and I guess uh, you know key hopes for it as it's as it's now um, flying out in the world. Yeah, I think obviously
1: the very concept of Sharia is in the news. Mm. Uh, it's debated people have opinions about it, well-founded or not. And so I was very aware of some of those debates. Um, And I was also, during my PhD, taking a directed study course on modern Islamic thought. And I realized that a lot of the ways that uh, various Muslim intellectuals were struggling with questions of justice, modernity, the state, resonated with what a a lot of things already knew in 20th and 21st century Christian theology, be that... Mm liberation thought whether, whether that's sort of the dialectic turn and i thought this is a conversation that needs to be happening mm. and so the book was an attempt to try to think through those things i didn't necessarily want it to only be about law i thought you know let's talk about justice the state more broadly but one of my committee members was just like you're you're chickening out like the thing is the law so why don't you
0: mm.
1: narrow that down um And so that was some of the reasons that I I went there. Um, I I was aware that it raises a lot of issues, um, especially in public discourse. Um, But there was a sense that I was frustrated that a lot of the ways that political liberals, uh, liberationists, Christian theologians from a wide variety of camps were talking about Islamic legal thought. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was, you know, there was a sense that if you read it primarily, yes, yes. There are um, some renderings of it that I would consider deeply problematic, but there was other ways that it was a source uh, and inspiration for anti-colonial work or transnational Mm -hmm. solidarity. And I wanted to try to engage with some of those ideas. And at the same time in doing that, I started reading Islamic thought that was being critical of Christian theology, of Mm -hmm. raising really important questions about how do Christians understand the nature of God's law and God's justice in relation to Jesus? Uh, And I wanted to sort of tease some of those out. So that was the inspiration uh, behind it and what I was trying to, to, to get at. It's essentially to say, is there a way we can engage with Islamic thought about the law in a way that is nuanced, charitable, but also allows for space of critique from both directions?
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, something you write early on in the book is, you know, yes, um, there's a danger in considering Islam as as reduced to Sharia, but at the same time it is impossible to engage Islam without Sharia. To reject Sharia uh, as inherently theocratic or barbaric or as a works-based view of salvation that is incompatible with either Christian or liberal values is to fail to engage honest Christian-Muslim exchange to collapse back into a dominant secular paradigm and to evade one of the central political theological debates of the past century. So as you kind of hinted at, it's definitely a word we've all heard, but I think for most of the audience, or at least a de- decent patch of people who are listening today, it's kind of that thing that's it's just invoked as a thing that is going to be imposed upon us unless we take radical steps to ensure that um, our liberal democratic law um, is uncontested and and consolidated. So maybe just I, everything might just be What? It's probably a very complex question. But what does the word mean? <laughs> what is it actually referring to? Um, you know, just just as a starting point, like you know, outside of some of, you know the usual kind of polemical um, evocation of it.
1: Yeah. So the term uh, Sharia uh, is an Arabic word that comes from the root of Sharia, which means the way. Um, So you can think of it as sort of a way of life, a way of being. Um, Sometimes uh, Muslims will translate it as the way to the watering hole or the way to God. Mm. Um, And so it has this broader connotation. I co-teach a class with my Muslim colleague, Mona Siddiqui, on Islamic law, and we call it From Prayer to Politics. Mm -hmm. And it really is that. It's everything from how you pray, when you pray, how you fast, how you're married and divorced, uh, if you should take interest, why you shouldn't. Um, so it does cover a, a wide scope of things. I think another thing that's really interesting is that the term Sharia classically isn't restricted to Islam. And in fact, in the Arabic uh, medieval period, they would quite often talk about a Christian Sharia or a Sharia al Injil or a Sharia al-Torah, a, a Sharia of the Torah or a Sharia of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so, it's simply a broader religious way of life. Um, so, if, if you know much about Judaism, it's it's often much closer to something like halakha than canon law, because it does cover everything from dietary ro- laws to marriage to criminal punishment. So, I think that's that's sort of the broader concept. But like anything in a religious tradition, it's been long debated because the Quran and the Hadith the examples of the prophet don't answer all the questions that Muslims have about life. And so different schools of law have developed about how to answer and how to engage with these kinds of questions. Uh, So that's a little bit about it. Obviously when it comes to the things you were talking about earlier, uh, theocratic wise, in the 20th century, especially it's become identified with certain acts of um, sort of criminal punishment and theocratic rule, especially as exemplified in sort of post-1979
0: Iran or Saudi Arabia. So, so um, one of the things you also talk about um, early on is, is, you know, there's this real gap in political theology, you know, in, in actually engaging this kind of conversation about law and about how we live, which, you know, as you say, this is a, this debate's been happening within Islam and they're asking questions of other models. You know, so it's, it's this, it's this right field, but it's kind of, in entirely or or, or not entirely, but predominantly, uh, ignored. And you kind of talk about if it is engaged, it's mostly at this kind of superficial level of of political violence or or fanaticism. Um, so I guess maybe the, like, one question was about why, why the gap? Like, is is there any kind of, is it the, um, is it just a bias against, the, the school is it a it's too hard to we haven't looked at it before and now it's too well developed too hard to get into it um and i guess then talking about your work of kind of trying to move i guess push p- political theology toward comparative theology and trying to you know, to, to, to in order to address this gap so yeah just curious a bit about the the you know any, any kind of thoughts about the reason this gap has kind of developed and then expanded and then how you're thinking of um approaching it
1: Yeah, I think when you talk about the field of political theology, it itself has largely operated with the Christian or post-secular binary. So either the Mm -hmm. school of thought that follows people like Carl Schmitt, you know, um, all political concept or secularized theological concepts, the notion of the exception and the sovereign, this kind of trajectory. Or you've got the new political theologians, Metz, Moltmann, Uh, etc. So you you have this sort of split between these two, the more genealogical side and then the more Christian normative side, which may end up in your Oliver O'Donovans or or whoever. Um, And Islamic thought hasn't been engaged with it that often, even though there's been this complex debate within Islamic studies and anthropology about the nature of the secular in Islam. And so I think there's a there's a way in which those fields of discourse could engage with one another. And I try to propose that they should. Uh, And especially those uh, political theologians who view themselves as Christians, um, that there's a particular reason to engage. Why is this the case? Um, I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, One has to do with the politics of translation, Um, neither Arabic nor Persian nor Turkish are particularly well-known languages amongst Western scholars, uh, especially Arabic, um, as the, the, the language that I use uh, in my texts. And so the, what gets translated, to be completely honest, tends to be either so-called radical Islam or liberal progressive Islam. So a lot of times the wide diversity of thinkers that are debating ideas of, of the secular of post-secularity of justice within the Islamic tradition are not engaged, but even there are a number that are, um, and there's a sense that it's just off limits. Um, I think there's an emerging interest in it. I'm on the editorial board of the journal Political Theology, and we've done a lot more at trying to expand that conversation, mm-hmm. but it remains the case that Uh, At least Christian theologians, more specifically, have yet to sufficiently engage with Islam. And when they do, it's usually sort of post 9-11 tropes. Islam as deen wa dawla, religion in the state, sharia as uh, a bugaboo. And I think a lot of this has to do with the realities of sort of post-1979 Iran, and then again, al-Qaeda, those two, and then later ISIS, right? Those become what it means to talk about Islam in politics, not um, Rashid Ghannouchi, an Islamist uh, in Tunisia who ends up in a democratically elected uh, situation after the Arab Spring, doesn't use the word sharia in his constitution. So there's a wide variety of these thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's an increasing interest in it, but um, like anything, it, Islam has been rendered out of Western Christian theology even when it's been present.
0: Mm-hmm. How much does... Um both in terms of that that omission and in the way it's often engaged, um, kind of falls within the broader kind of anti-law, anti-nominism of particularly Protestant theology. Like you referenced early on, like when Martin Luther is kind of talking about it, he's he's comparing the legalism of Islam to that of Rome, Um, or others might compare it to, again, like to um, more kind of negative portrayals of of Judaism as well. So, like, I'm curious about how much of the, is, is also played in, um, and what you're trying to address is also this kind of, well, law. Anytime that word is brought up, it's bad, and and Christians really can't engage it because we're now this religion of grace and gospel and yada, yada, yada.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where the book tries to end up going and saying mm-hmm. one of the things that we can do when we actually listen to Islamic critiques is look back at ourselves and ask questions mm-hmm. I'm speaking here as a Western Protestant theologian. I'm not speaking for all Christians in all times and places. How have we come to render the law in certain ways? How is that dependent on anti-Judaism uh, in a large portion? How do how might we make sense of scriptural tradition, history, political justice in new ways in light of this dialogue? But as you say, um, from Luther, I think actually from from Paul onwards, but even especially Augustine and other figures, law gets rendered primarily as something restrictive. Mm. Uh, It's not, I mean, you can see this, I have a section on Justin Martyr in the book. He even says, you know, the reason God gives the law to Israel isn't because of special election, it's because they are particularly bad. And there's this notion that nothing good could be equated with the law. And you juxtapose this to the way that Uh, Rabbinic Judaism talks about law or Islam talks about law, which is as a gift, as a way of life, as a way that can, it isn't what saves you, but it is a way to lead you into a whole. Now that isn't to say that Muslims and Jews don't debate the law, don't uh, recognize its own limits, or or have reform movements within themselves, but within the Christian, especially the the Latin tradition that I'm part of, there is this tendency to constrict it, to convicting us of our sins, or unnecessarily restricting us from freedom. And I'm trying to think is that those parts may be true, but is there more to it uh, than just that?
0: I think that's really helpful. Um, You know, you kind of talk, John, I'll go to them in a second. One thing I think also it's interesting is you're talking about just, you know, how much is the, some of the difficulty in having these conversations that we're just at fundamentally different starting points when we think about, you know, the like the necessity of a particular form of nation state um, or, or the actual relation, what is, you know, religion and politics and the relationship between the two, um, that, you know, Christians coming from the West or, or the very entrenched in a particular, you know, liberal democratic kind of understanding are just starting at a completely different, fundamentally different point than, than um, those working in, in uh, Islamic scholarship, you know, um, and, 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 having these debates in a completely different context. Um, so I'm just curious a bit about that, like how, how that makes it potentially a difficult, uh, or I guess also fruitful in the way it pushes against some of this, the very like, you know, very, um, deeply assumed assumptions that, that underlie a lot of how we think of the relationship between religion and politics. Um, if that makes sense, I'm trying to get it. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a lot
1: that you could unpack there. One of the things that I'm trying to to think about in, in the book and in my broader work is both to take into consideration some of the real benefits of the legacy of political liberalism on the one hand, but also a lot of the critiques of it from critical theorists, whether this is sort of the Talal Assad, Sabah Mahmood school that says, look, secularism isn't neutral. It's an organization of power that decides what counts as religion and what counts as politics. And if you look, I don't know the Australian context as well as I do the American or the, or the European, but the amount of things that are marked throughout in Scotland, England and Wales, even in France or in Germany, uh, or the United States or Canada, that even if we say they are secular, are undergirded by certain Christian assumptions, even if those have been transposed. Things like when we have a weekend, what holidays we get off. Here yeah. in the UK, you know, we still have laws on, on the books that the prime minister can't be Catholic, which is related to mm. longer, you know, traditions mm. of Catholic. So that, or if you take the, the the case of France, which has this ardent commitment to not just church state separation, but the but the state rendering religion interior matter. But the ways in which that happens often assumes sort of Catholic assumptions. Um, and I think one of the things my work is trying to do is say, how can we see this within our own societies? Um, what we take as normal and operative isn't, there isn't one secularism, there's a whole host of them. Uh, and then what are some of the ways that Muslims despite our assumptions that they merge religion and politics, what are actually some of the ways in the history of Islamic thought, as well as in Islamic practice, that political leadership and uh, religious courts or theologians actually were separated in, in more complicated ways than we think? And not to just rush to this assumption that, you know, Christianity is the religion that knows how to separate religion and politics. Islam is the one that doesn't and to say, actually, religion and politics are constantly interwoven and contested and rethought, and what are some of the different ways that this has happened over time, and what are some ways that we can think afresh about this? So when I engage with the Muslim thinkers throughout the book, I'm looking at a variety of those, some that would argue very much so that sharia is the answer, and others that are arguing, no, uh, while we still want to hold on to the sharia, any state that enforces the Sharia is not enforcing God's law. They're enforcing a human law, right? That God's law always remains outside of our grasp. And and there's a wide variety of these positions uh, within the Islamic traditions. And I'm trying to to say there's a way to have a conversation that doesn't always end up in the, you know, should Muslims be allowed to have divorce courts or Mm. is Sharia creeping into Australia or the United States because Muslims want to get married under Sharia law. You know, it's and one of the things I always say in my class is like Sharia is already in Australia. Uh, any major bank has an Islamic banking um, arm, which is under Sharia. Uh, why do they have that? Because they want money. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Like and a lot of those Islamic banking actually are getting around the spirit of the Sharia, right, to find mm-hmm. a way to get a fee without charging interest, which is really just interest in another name. And there's Muslims who've been critical of this. Um, if there's Muslims getting married in, in Australia, they're, they're Sharia. If Muslims are praying or, or practicing Ramadan, they're Sharia. What we're really talking about usually are criminal punishment courts. That's what mm-hmm. people are fixated on. And I'm trying to say we we can talk about that, but there's a much broader conversation yeah. that also needs to be to be going on about some of these issues.
0: Mm. And thank you for that. And I think also, like, as you say, what kind of gets brought up is that the way we, you know, we can become, uh, you know, not see the ways that, you know, you can make live a lot of critiques that um, Christianity isn't this like, you know, neatly separated off like i was thinking you know the australian parliament still opens with prayer or you know there's every other week there's probably some debate about somewhere in the u.s about whether or not they should keep the ten commandments uh, outside a courthouse kind of thing um that like it's already kind of very messy and i guess part of what's good about this conversation is drawing attention to that and then also helping um, to resource christian theologians in thinking through these questions about you know how should we respond to, to such a thing to such a use of divine law is in the Ten Commandments in a you know public human law setting as somehow um, you know enshrining, endorsing, guiding whatever it is that's happening inside this, this courthouse um, at the time? So I think that's helpful.
1: Yeah me. and I mean I think one of the things political theology, especially the more critical side is to, is to genealogically uncover that. Mm. But once you uncover that, then you have to ask questions. Well, what does that mean for how I engage as a Christian theologian with Islamic thought, Jewish thought, Mm. liberal thought, leftist thought, conservative thought? um, And that it's not there's not this neutral um, starting point that we all have, but that we need to engage with it. At the same time, uh, I'm critical both in the book and in my own own life about some of the dangers of invoking divine law to justify political action and the tendency especially of that to be coming from, let's say, more conservative models. But one of the things that the book tries to also push is just because that's the case doesn't mean we need to give up on this notion of divine law's import for public law. Uh, And is there another way to think about this um, and to try to draw out some of those some of those dynamics. So not just retreating and saying, oh, because this person invoked, you know, I, I used an example of just because Jeff Sessions evokes Romans 13 mm. to justify separating kids from their family at the borders. Is that the only way to invoke divine law when we're talking about political uh, action? Are there are there other ways that
0: actually might press against uh, that use? Mm. Yeah, thank you. I think that's, that's helpful. And so, you know, part of the book is to try to talk about the way in which, I'll try to get the language right here if I can, um, the way in which, you know, um, your public law is a provisional and indirect witness to the divine rule of justice. Do you want to kind of just expand a little bit on, on that as where the book kind of is pushing toward, um, you know, as I saying that, you know, you can still have this connection, but it's not necessarily the one that we're um, most familiar with.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, in the, in the final chapter, I try to develop... After reading Islamic critiques of Christian uh, theologies of law, looking at some of the ways these emerged, uh, I used some, you know, as I said, I'm a Protestant. Uh, used some thinking from, especially Wolfhard Pannenberg, Karl Barth, mm-hmm. and others to develop this this idea of provisional, indirect, and witness. Mm-hmm. All of those that I then play out in particular ways. Um, one of the things I try to do is to situate discussion of the law as the title of the book says in the rule of God or the kingdom Mm. of God. And to argue for a number of reasons, one, this is helpful for Christian theology um, because oftentimes we look at law in relationship to the gospel or law in Mm. relationship to creation. And I want to put it in a broader framework to say the law is a response to the coming of divine justice Mm-hmm. And that this also gives us space to talk about how Muslims debate the law, right? The law is a reflection of God's rule. It isn't God's rule, but is a reflection of God's rule. Mm-hmm. And that this kind of broader theopolitical space can help our dialogue rather than just talking about, you know, should Australia have marriage courts for Muslims? Should mm-hmm. Iran have freedom of religion for Christians. Those are things we need to address, but not first and foremost. I want to have Mm -hmm. these broader debates. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what I'm trying to do in that section is to situate it in this broader theological account. And then I sort of flesh out all of those terms. What do I mean by witness? In that case, the law isn't justice, but it gestures towards God's justice. And it can do this uh, indirectly, which is related to the word, which it doesn't need to invoke uh, Christianity or Islam in order to do it, that the very act of seeking justice, um, and, and here you can see some of the echoes of Barth or uh, a left-wing reading of Barth, right? It can gesture towards God. It's a parable of the kingdom, even if it doesn't know it. And in fact, a critique of the church is as likely or even more likely to be an indirect witness than the church's own witness. Uh, and that we don't actually depend on religious establishment have a connection to divine justice. And then finally is this phrase provisional, which I play out in the longest section, looking at the crucifixion and resurrection, especially. Uh, And this is an idea that I, I was frustrated with two different ways of thinking about it. One from Oliver O'Donovan, who talks about the imperfectibility of the law, which essentially for me ends up in him kind of shrugging his shoulders. Like we do our best, but you know, we end up in something like a moderate conservatism. Uh, Or Bonhoeffer's notion of the penultimate, which always felt like this sort of, it still had these latent two kingdoms, Lutheranism that I didn't care for. And so I use provisionality uh, to try to push in a more leftist direction to say, look, the law does give a witness to God, but it always needs to be, it's always provisional. It's always up for revision. It always needs to be contested and returned to. Uh, we never arrive um, and so that's a little bit of the dial- the more dialectic influences of my thought. I don't I'm not a a classic liberal or even a liberationist. I'm against language of we participate in bringing in the kingdom. I, I much prefer we can bear witness to it and events and protests and things like this. So that's what I'm trying to play out with in that section and think about how then that can be a framework that I can then engage with Islamic, debates themselves. Um, So it's both as an eternal way to think about Christian theological engagement and and witness, as well as then, how can this help me engage with various Muslim debates?
0: Thank you for that. I think one thing that's interesting to draw out is, um, you kind of make reference to this about like, you know, interfaith action and dialogue, you know, about, usually about a lot of things, but often is about, um, especially when it comes together toward action, about responding to particular human Laws, right? Responding to like, oh, we need to revise this law, or this law is being used to persecute this religious minority, or you know, and and, and that's kind of the way um, it's often it's often brought in and, and focused on um, public law and common good, I guess to, to summarise that. Yeah. Um, but what you're trying to do kind of, I guess, is shift the focus somewhat uh, to both acknowledgement acknowledgement of the ways that law, ethics, public good, and social life. Are intertwined with divergent theological and scriptural claims. And thus, we need to resist the temptation to focus exclusively on questions of public law, state establishment, and human rights, the exclusion of any examination of scripture, personal ethics, soteriology, and theology. Uh, you know, so I guess i I'm into the talk a bit about this, um, you know, and the way that this helps maybe reframe or expand or broaden that kind of, you know, important interfaith work. As you say, there are laws that need to be um, addressed and changed in various contexts and, and things like that. But um, but maybe there is this admission that we need to acknowledge that we're coming at it from different ideas and we think the law, you know, different faith and different faith traditions within different faiths are going to think the law relates to divine justice, as you've said, in different ways. So just interested in talking, you know, for those who are involved in that kind of work, um, which is good. How this kind of redirection, I guess, in some ways, is is a helpful um, corrective.
1: Yeah, that that's a really good question, and it's a, it's a little bit complicated because I don't want to to push away from those kind of activities. Mm. Mm. What I do want to question is whether or not those activities can serve to unite us as much as we often think and to, to notice that the ways oftentimes some of those activities only already include people who already agree about politics uh, and that they often serve to exclude certain communities. Um, I'll give a few examples in a minute. And so one of the things I'm critical of is, yeah, I've in, even though I've said I'm Protestant, I'm very influenced by a lot of Catholic work on Christian-Muslim dialogue. Nostra Tate in the third paragraph talks about Christians and Muslims having many disagreements and quarrels throughout the year. And instead, we should put aside our differences and work towards the common good and human welfare, which is all well and good. But the problem, of course, is that our our theological differences actually also touch on our ideas of justice. Um, So things Mm -hmm. like religious freedom, things like the proclamation of the gospel, understandings of Sharia understandings of what counts as good, views about human sexuality, those also involve claims about revelation, interpretation, Sharia that we should engage with. Um, and so if what is happening with the call to justice and the common good is an evasion of difference, then I, I'm, I'm trying to criticize it. But at the same time I do, and, and, and I, I push towards this, then the book want to emphasize those moments of action that aren't just um, Simple, but also might involve transformation. So I use two examples, uh, one from Scotland where it was Muslim critiques of interest, especially high interest rates that led the Church of Scotland, a Presbyterian uh, denomination to rediscover its own critiques of usury and interest rates. And so they've developed a banking system to challenge predatory loans. Right. So here's a moment where actually, I mean, Christians aren't going to admit we learn from Sharia, but that's what <laughs> happened. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's important. And then the other is examples around work that I've done on migration in Europe and mm-hmm. the ways in which the one of the things I think is really important about both Islamic and Jewish thought is that it's. Primarily interested in the concrete laws, not in the abstract notion of law. And that often Christian theology is more about this nebulous thing called law that we think is settled and fixed, Mm. but actually the law is changing, contested, dynamic. Um, And what we're talking about when we talk about laws aren't just the concept of law, but this law, this Mm -hmm. situation. And it's those that I'm trying to sort of call attention to. Um, and to do that, I think we need to have a little bit more of a reflection on, on how we understand things. So uh, I'm not against interreligious engagement. I do it. I'm for it, but sometimes, and I'll give, I mean, one example, right, is, is the whole Israel Palestine debate is sort of off limits for Jewish Christian Muslim dialogue. If you want harmony, don't bring it up. (laughs) Mm. Um, but it is for Jews a very important issue about post Holocaust reality, and for Palestinians, it's a huge issue of injustice and alienation. For right, so here is yeah. this this thing that for both for all three parties, because remember, there's lots of Palestinian Christians, mm. is a central reality of justice and mm. of law. Mm. Uh, leaving aside my own personal politics about, but it's it's rendered outside the bounds of interreligious engagement. Mm. We could talk about similar things where. Um, certain more progressive Christians don't want to bring up ideas about the ordination of women or LGBTQ issues because this is perceived to rock the boat. And so insofar as interfaith turns to justice can be a pretty simple, like let's clean up the neighborhood, like cleaning up the neighborhood's great. Um, but is that all there is? And if, if that's, if the only way we can you know pick up trash in the neighborhood is if we don't allow ourselves to talk about issues of, Israel, Palestine, or patriarchy, or uh, systemic oppression, well, then that's what I'm trying to press against to say, you know, can we have this longer conversation that actually may lead to disagreement, um, but actually can also find other places of solidarity? So that's, I think, a little bit of what I have in my mind. I mean, the irony of me doing interreligious stuff is when I was a seminarian, I thought it was all dumb and a waste of time. Uh, and now I'm like, and I still have a little bit of that streak in me, like that if what we're doing is all getting together uh and saying the most baseline ideas of ourselves and not really engaging with the complexity of our agreements and disagreements, mm. you know, we could we could we can do that better mm. at the cafe if we're allowed to ever go again in Scotland.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um I was curious about like, you know, just be expanding a little bit on the book. So like, you know, you talked about that course you teach with with Mona like in Edinburgh. Um, You also talked earlier about teaching um, in in, in the acknowledgement about teaching in in Egypt, um, you know, and teaching, you know, a bit of comparative theology, a bit of uh, Christian Muslim dialogue and the like. And I was just curious as I was thinking about reading for the book and knowing a bit about you, um, those are very different contexts. I feel to be teaching and engaging in those kind of dialogues, and uh, and the, I'm sure the questions that arise are quite different. And so, I guess I got the two questions I have: a uh, one broadly about the the joy and frustration that comes from engaging these kind of dialogues, teaching these kind of courses, and were there any kind of a really clear, like, well, obviously there'd be so many, but stark differences, or how it, how it's maybe surprising differences in teaching in those two context or surprising similarities, I should say as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've had a real privilege to have taught at, you know, my first job was at a Protestant seminary in the States, mm-hmm. mainline PCUSA seminary and students. I've taught in Egypt, I've taught in Nigeria, I've taught a secular undergraduate course, and then I've got master's and PhD students who could be coming because they want to be a Muslim theologian or a Christian theologian, or because they're sort of a secular scholar of religion. And all of those are really different. Um, And there's certain complications in all, in all of those, Um, you know, there, there's also the excitement, I think, of, of doing the kind of work I do uh, and that Mona and others do. There's a way in which the field of Christian theology, where I was originally trained in, right? Like, the paths are pretty well trodden. It's not that there's not new things to discover. There are. We're talking about the mystery of God in the world. Of course, there's new things to discover. But the questions we ask, the ways we go about answering them, uh, especially in the kind of um, white male Protestant stuff, uh, you know, do, are you a Bardian or a Schleimachian? Are you a liberationist or or a scholastic? Um, you know, they, they get kind of, well-trodden, and there's some excitement to saying, here are ways Muslims are thinking about something similar but different. How does this make me rethink my own ideas? How do I teach this? Um, Obviously, teaching to Protestant, I mean, I was teaching at a Protestant seminary in Egypt uh, as a reminder. You know, there's millions of Christians in Egypt. I'd say to my undergraduates, you know, there's more Christians in Egypt than there are people in Scotland. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, the vast majority of them are Coptic, but there's a good quarter million to a half million who are protestants mm. um and so i was teaching at their that their seminary at a master's level so most of them were actually already ministers themselves and i taught the semester of the arab spring so 10 years ago now mm. uh, and so that experience was obviously particularly unique and formative right because here's this white early 30s American coming in to teach Christian Muslim dialogue and the history of Middle Eastern Christianity to people whose lives are marked by this. Right. Um, but that was always, that's always really informative. Um, and I try really hard in the book to say, I'm not writing to tell Christians in Egypt or Iraq or Nigeria or Muslims in France, how to think I'm trying to think as who I am and in my context. And, um, you know, I've gotten some good feedback from Christians in Indonesia or Egypt. I've gotten some very critical feedback from a really close friend who's a Syrian Christian about that I'm too sympathetic to Sharia. Um, and I want to take those those things on board. But I think part of the joy of teaching in those different contexts is that I have those voices in my head when I'm writing. Like how, what, how, what does this make sense to a posh English secularist versus a Muslim from Indonesia versus a Syrian Christian, how do I account for those? I'm not responsible only for them. I'm only responsible for myself, but at least having them interrogate my ideas in a way. And that happens most clearly in a classroom. So
0: thank you for that. That's, that's great. Um, we're coming toward the end. Uh, I put out a call for questions on, on Twitter, um, trip fuller, wanted to talk about Schleiermarker, um, but we'll save that for another day. Uh, because, you know, we, I, uh, there's going to be an episode with um, Ruth, uh, Ruth Jackson Ravenscroft coming up, and, uh, you know, as the Twitter Schleiermacher Renaissance, I know you're a part of, you know, you're, you're, you're connected to that movement, so we'll get you on another day to talk about that, um, and you answered Tripp's question about wine, so so that's yeah. <laughs> fine. Um, but uh, Matthew Julius, a uh, friend of the podcast, hi, Matt, um, he asked a following, which I thought was a, a good, you know, bringing, bringing out what you're saying there, that this is actually, you know, these questions that, alive ones for you and your own uh, you know, theological development and 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 finding your way in the world he asked uh, the following so he was asking about how does comparative theology in dialogue with Islam help deepen or expand your understanding between the relationship of faith and reason or, or, or framed otherwise feeling and logic and I guess that came out of a conversation on Twitter where you had spoke about you know how Christian claims to try unity or incarnation, uh, fumble, I guess, the classical Muslim, uh, i uh, botched that for sure, and are only per- persuasive in light of a prior experience of God's saving power through Christ. So this might a way too big a question. So you don't have to go entirely into it in any way. Um, but I guess I was just curious about, you know, you've talked before about, you know, and through this interview, the way these those questions you had from those, you know, teenage boys, you know, really pushing on these live issues and, and how, you know, these voices, you know, from the students you've had, you know, challenge how you write and think. So whether you want to take this specific thing that Matt's asking, or whether you want to just kind of talk more broadly about the way you felt it, per- you know, this, this comparative theology has personally shaped um, how you think through some of these really significant questions, I'm, I'm I'm turning it over to you to see how you want to play that.
1: Yeah. So that was a, I, I tweet way too much, and i <laughs> i don't I don't like uh, attend to my brand enough um, it, on Twitter. I just sort of read something that I find interesting, or or say something, or grumble about uh, <laughs> about my work. Um, but I was preparing a class that I'm teaching right now on Jesus and Christian Muslim dialogue, and I was preparing the reading list and reading some of the Muslim critiques of the incarnation, classical ones uh by somebody named abdul al-jabbar um as well as ibn tamia these are medieval muslims and i just tweeted out that i thought that the the muslim critiques if you're basing it on logic alone are more persuasive mm. uh and this got retweeted a lot a lot of muslims love this i get lots of muslims sliding into my dms asking me when i converted um and, and i still buy i still think that and mm. i think you know, And Muslims Muslims do raise questions to Christians like, if the fundamental claim of your faith is that God is present for us in Jesus, how do you make sense of the fact that you Christians can agree on this most fundamental thing? Muslims, of course, are divided about a lot of things. We're, they're divided about who uh, follows after the prophet Muhammad. They're divided about whether the Quran is, a, is eternally God's speech or created God's speech. Mm-hmm. But they all agree that the Quran is God's speech. And that Muhammad is the prophet of God, like Mm -hmm. that, you know, the Shahada and, uh, you know, there is no God but God and Muhammad is the prophet of God. We agree about this as Mm -hmm. Muslims. But you Christians, and they know this, right, because in Eastern Christianity, you have both Chalcedonians and non-Chalcedonians as living churches, not as disappeared churches. Like, so the way that you're told the story, especially if you're a Protestant or a Catholic, is like Chalcedon, then all of the you know, the Nestorians and the Jacobites and the Monophysites, they kind of disappear. They didn't disappear. There's still Christians in Egypt, in Iraq, and the, the Muslims writing know this, and they're essentially saying, you know, look at you. If this is so logical, how can't you agree on your central claim of faith? We're not talking about a marginal thing. We're talking about the thing. Um, and so I, you know, I tweeted about this, and it caused a little bit of an uproar. Uh, a really good scholar who's a, a A postdoc at Oxford who's a Lebanese Christian pushed back on me, rightfully so, on this, and it led to a little kerfuffle. And so, you know, what I was trying to say and and clarifying wasn't that, and this is how some of the Muslims took it, that the Trinity or the Incarnation are necessarily irrational and stupid. Mm -hmm. What I was trying to say is that if you're operating only in the assumptions of divine unity as given to you by Judaism and Islam on the one hand and sort of Aristotelian logic on the other, the Trinity and the incarnation, you're at a disadvantage, but that you can't make sense of, and here's my Protestantism and my Shalarmakarianism coming out. The incarnation and the Trinity only makes sense in light of an already claim of God's presence for us in Jesus. And that hmm. is the more f- We move from soteriology to theology. Um, because we experience God for us in Jesus, we then have to make claims about what this means. Uh, and so I don't think that that I think that Christians have come up with a way of making sense of this. That doesn't mean it's irrational, um, but it does mean that it's it, it isn't a foundational. Right. We have pre-cognitive. Well, not pre We have a, a, a form of tradition that already has shaped the way we dialogue. And in this, I talk about this a little bit in the first chapter of my book. actually, I'm influenced by David Burrell, uh, who's a comparative theologian, a philosophical theologian. And one of the things he does is say, we don't have to get rid of these specificities, right? We don't have to get rid of the ways that Muslims claim that God speaks in Muhammad and Christians claim that God speaks as Jesus to understand each other. Actually, if we can f- if you can follow the logic of Christian theology, it may actually help you follow the logic of Islamic theology Mm. and vice versa and see the points where you diverge better and more clearly. Um, And that there isn't uh, this sort of neutral space of reason that we can all end up agreeing on because whatever I mean by this, and I don't mean it in a like simplistic way, Christians have certain claims about Jesus that Muslims disagree with. Mm. And Muslims have certain claims about, God's revelation in Muhammad that Christians disagree with. That doesn't mean we can't follow the logic of one another, but it helps us, and Dan Madigan uh, points this out well, it it helps us figure out where we actually agree and where we actually disagree. And it may be that we actually agree on things we thought we didn't and disagree on things that we thought we agreed upon. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's some of the joy and experience of 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 doing theology in the comparative iteration, right? Uh, to take Muslims as seriously, talking about about the same God, I, I leave open ended whether we worship the same God, because I think to predetermine that it is presumptuous. But that we're talking about the same God and that we're struggling for the truth and meaning of this God uh, is is part of the dialogue and the, and the discovery. Um, and for me, I, I've I'm, the current book that I'm working on, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the last chapter as well as some of the things that I've published on, theology is always a human endeavor. I mean, whether this is from Kathy Tanner or Lynn Tonstad or Schleiermacher, you know, we aren't the judge and the jury over God. We are witnesses to God uh, and so are Muslims. And we're, we're in, a, in a situation of testimony and counter-testimony uh, of trying to make sense of this. And that's a little bit what I'm trying to get at in that thread and in my work more generally. It's off-putting to some people because uh, here's my my lingering Bardenism: like God is against religion and I'm not in the business of defending religion, right? God has... Uh, God's revelation is a critique of all religion, including mine. And I don't think Barth takes that seriously enough. Mm. And so I'm not entering into, into this to defend Christianity. I'm entering in this to, to bear witness to what I see or know, aware that I am a provisional human that could be wrong. Um, and that isn't, that isn't to minimize my faith. It's actually to say that my faith doesn't depend on me, but upon the one in whom I place my trust.
0: Thank you for that. that. That's really great. And I think one thing that comes out there, you know, just that, that ties back to that conversation about like interfaith dialogue and action is that, you know, we care about these things because we, you know, believe something and something has generated a feeling and passion in us um, and we should be, you know, honest about that um, and then allow that to, you know, that hopefully will help shape and open up some more ways in which we can discuss and dialogue um, fruitfully yeah. and, and and open up more avenues into those kind of actions. And the the friendships, the meals, mm. the social actions those
1: may pre, those may create the space of trust that allow for those debates, mm. right? Um, so they could they could come first, and they could be totally necessary. Um, but one of the things that I hope will happen is you know bringing our whole self and all of its complications to the dialogue. If I already know, you know, to if I go into an interreligious mm. dialogue with a Muslim and say, well, I already know what's our religions are the same or our right, religions right. really are talking about the same thing. You know, there's there's nothing to be learned. There's nothing to, mm. to be discovered. Um, and that's part of what I think the real, the real excitement of this is, is that there's a possibility of being confronted and thinking afresh.
0: That's a great place to end. Thank you, Joshua, for coming on today. The book is uh, Law and the Rule of God out with Cambridge, uh, and you can check it out, pick it up. Pick up a copy for yourself, for your grandma, for your local library, whoever you want to get it for. Um, but it's a really excellent book, you know, rich in detail and, and yeah, really pushing on an argument that, as you say, is not the well-trodden uh, territory of, you know, opening up a, another little degree. So um, other than the book, anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to in this moment?
1: Yeah. I mean, if any of you have uh, interest in learning a little bit more about Christian Muslim relations, my colleagues and I have done a free four week short online course uh, on Christian Muslim relations through FutureLearn. I think it's still available to sign up for a couple more weeks. So we just sort of have some videos and readings that you can walk through at your own pace. So if you're interested, we got four weeks on
0: on scripture, on theology, on politics and on history. Excellent. I'll I'll put the link to that in the, uh, in the show notes below. Uh, Joshua Ralston, thank you for coming on Love Ends Repeat. Thanks everyone for watching. We'll see you next week.